Today, on Early Music Monday, we're going to talk a little bit about the Italian Renaissance composer Salomone Rossi. I like saying the name with the flipped R. Salomone Rossi. Anyway, and then we're going to have a great interview with conductor Josh Haberman, conductor of Santa Fe Desert Chorale and several other ensembles. Buckle up. This is Early Music Monday. So my first introduction to Salomone Rossi was during my time in BYU Singers, and we sang a fantastic piece of music by Salomone Rossi. I actually don't even remember what it was. It shows you how fantastic it was. Well, it actually doesn't, because it was amazing. And I I remember being really taken in by his counterpoint and his use of texture, there was all kinds of really, if you're looking at it from a Renaissance lens, I mean, forward-thinking ideas of texture and harmony and all of these little musical elements. And he he was a contemporary of Monteverdi, so he was very forward-thinking into the Baroque time period. And then... And it was in Hebrew, so I was also very confused about that. I was like, huh. So, you know, when you realize, okay, well, he was living in Mantua with composers like Monteverdi and Gesualdo, and he was he was the concert master of the court there in Mantua, which is a pretty big deal. And the fact that he was Jewish made it even more of a big deal because... So, to take a little bit of a trip, we're going to fasten our seatbelts, and then we're going to hop on the plane, and we're going to go to Mantua. We forgot the time travel thing. Anyway, so in 17th century Mantua, there was this kind of, well really throughout all of Europe, and it had been going on for centuries before this, but there was this cultural phenomenon, I guess, for lack of a better word, that occurred uh, with Jewish people living in Europe, and really in some Middle Eastern countries, that Jews were required to wear some sort of distinguishing garb and they had a yellow badge in uh, Mantua in the 17th century and that was because of uh, Vincenzo Gonzaga when I hear Gonzaga I think of the basketball team because I'm from the west BYU's arch nemesis Gonzaga anyway I knew they were a religious school but I didn't realize that Gonzaga, the person, had expelled all foreign-born Jews from Mantua. And he, th- there was all kinds of rules and regulations and things that they were supposed to do and things that they weren't allowed to do. They weren't allowed to leave 
their little and he he established this idea of a ghetto where they were all kind of living in the same spot so they could keep an eye on them and they weren't allowed to leave the ghetto during Christmas and Easter and other Christian you know holidays and all kinds of crazy things that were used to distinguish them from you know Christians a lot of Islamic states did the same thing to the Jews where they they made them wear Star of David type deal and other European countries did the same thing. Christian, early Christian countries around that time were also doing that to Muslims and Muslim did it to Christians. It was just all kinds of crazy of we're going to divide ourselves in every way we know possible. And distinguish ourselves so we know who to hate and who to love. Makes sense. As one does, you know. So, but he was, Rossi was so good and such, so highly esteemed that he was exempt from wearing that badge, which is pretty amazing if you think about it. And so, anyway, he was, he was enthralled with it. So that's a little bit about just the life of, Solomone Rossi, and I and I think it's interesting when you'll hear some of the conversation that uh, Josh Haberman and I have about being inclusive and creating community and finding ways to connect with other people. And he says something really fascinating about there's people that he knows in the choral community that I, he there there would be no other reason for us to meet or to be friends, but we love this thing called choral music and it brings us together and it's amazing. And so I think music does that more broadly, but there's something about singing. And when, when, you know, even looking toward the Baroque back then, most of the musical tradition up to that point had been vocal and music in the church certainly still was vocal. Mantua, Italy, Venice, or Italy, obviously. These cities in Italy served as kind of a forward-thinking place where they started to use instruments in the church, but still, it was still primarily vocal. And there's something about singing together. It's like your voice is a part of you. And as that, as you sing together, there's something that bonds you together. All right, now enough of that gooey show of emotion. The one thing that I think is really fascinating about all of it, though, is the fact that Rossi then takes this kind of uh, Italian Catholic tradition, music tradition, and incorporates some Hebrew folk music-like sounds in, in the mix. And so it's this, again, completely unique compositional voice coming out of Salomone Rossi. It's kind of like Gesualdo, where even though, you know, Monteverdi might have been more avant-garde than Gesualdo in certain ways, there's a very distinctive sound that Gesualdo writes with. There's, he has a very distinctive voice, and Salomone Rossi is also one of those composers. And um, because, again, there's this these like really subtle hints of Hebrew scale and there's these, these cool texture shifts and 
and his counterpoint is really, really well crafted, and it, but it has these little sparkly elements of of something foreign, I guess, when you compare it to other European Catholic sonorities, for lack of a better descriptor. And so I think that there's a lot of really interesting parallels to Rossi's day and our day of trying to create this sense of division versus really trying to use music to bring everybody together under the umbrella of, hey, music is music is music is music. And it's really good. And the Catholics at the time were like, I don't really care if he's Jewish, his music's really good. So they just kind of like didn't really care. And I think that there's something to be said for, I don't care who wrote this, it sounds really good. I didn't even look at the composer. I think that that's something, side note, that's really cool about composition contests where you have blind, you have, you know, like most of them, you have to take your the name off the score and it's a completely blind audition. I think that's great because you just look at the craftsmanship and how the music is constructed and how the sound is choreographed and how the musical elements are put together and, you know, then when you realize, oh, this is so-and-so and they have a really unique background and that adds to their music, you're like, oh, I can totally hear that instead of trying to force that. I think it when it comes across in the music, it's, it's even all that mo- more remarkable. So I think Solomon Rossi's life teaches a lesson of being able to focus on to not focus on the things that make us different, but to focus on the things that make us the same. And music is the one thing that makes us similar, even when our music is different between cultures or our cultural or like musical tastes are different and whatever. I think the idea and the language of music is is really the key. So there's a little bit about the life of Salomone Rossi. Now I'm going to play, this is a clip taken directly from YouTube by um, New York Baroque, a piece by Salomone Rossi titled Elohim Hashivenu. And you'll hear a little bit of what I'm talking about in the, there's that slight Hebrew influence with this really, uh, um, it's not trendy, but really idiomatic sound of the Italian, like the peak of the Italian Renaissance going into the Baroque. Composers like Monteverdi and Gesualdo and all those other Mantuan um, peeps that were throwing down beats in the same spot. So here is Elohim Hashivenu by Salomone Rossi performed by New York Baroque.
Okay, now we will turn to our interview with Josh Haberman, conductor of Santa Fe Desert Corral, and I'll let him tell his story a little bit uh, and his introduction. So without further ado, here is Josh Haberman. So, uh, Josh, thanks so much for being willing to to do this. It's really exciting for me because I've heard a lot about you from from Andy Crane for years, and so to kind of finally meet the the man behind the legend is really exciting for me. So it's really cool. Oh, thanks. It's a pleasure. How's uh, so? If you would mind starting, I would love to hear kind of when you started you know, music to when you decided, okay, I want to do this to kind of now where you are at this point in your life, kind of a little, you know, as much of a detail as you want to give, I'd love to hear that story. Yeah. So, um, I'll make it just as kind of direct a line as I can. Um, I did not intend to do music. I always liked singing. I was a singer when I was a kid and really enjoyed that. Um, but I had no professional aspirations with that at all. Um, I thought I was going to go into languages. So I was figured I was heading for the foreign service or interpreting or something like that. Yeah. So I went to school in DC for that reason and, you know, tried to get involved in a lot of international stuff, which I still love. It's cool. Yeah. Um, but there was a point. Um, along the way, and I've told this story enough that it's become kind of a story now that I can kind of short circuit to the end. But <laughs> yeah. Basically, I had an experience where um, I was listening to music on a Walkman, which I should explain to your listeners is a small device that's used for playing music. Um, <laughs> the the cassette best. Tapes. Cassette yeah. tapes, the best. Which I definitely had. And I was listening to the uh, recording of the four last songs by Richard Strauss. Not even choral music, but it's amazing. And, you know, as I look back on it, I think, well, if, if you were in college and listening to the four last songs by Richard Strauss, maybe you were meant to be doing music all along. Like, in retrospect, that becomes a little clearer <laughs> than it was. Before. Right. But that was what I thought was cool. And so I was listening to that. And something happened that I can only describe as kind of an epiphany where I finally settled my mind a little bit. I had gotten to class early. And so I was listen- I was hearing the music, listening to the music, but not hearing it mm. until I settled down and, and just started really focusing on what was playing in my ears and had this sense of something much bigger than myself. Yeah, I had wow. this feeling like there was something that was so big inside the music and it was bigger than Richard Strauss and it was bigger than the poetry, which I also loved. It was German poetry, which I was studying at the time. So I was into that and yeah. I liked all that, but I also had this sense like there was something bigger going on. It was really amazing, and maybe this was something that I needed to do. Yeah. And, of course, in retrospect, I can speak about it a little bit more articulately than I could at the time. Oh, I'm sure. But I would say that this was the beginning of like this inkling of, wait a minute, maybe this other thing is actually what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah. That's great. Wow, what a cool experience. Um you know, I, I have I have moments like that too. My path's a little bit different, but it, I, along the way, I think you know all of us have those moments where everything else around us is quiet, and then and then that quiets our mind, and then we're able to kind of have this, like you said, larger than life experience with 
this music that you're like, wow, okay, there is something, you know, otherworldly almost about this, and mm -hmm. that's really cool. So then, um, what, what, since that was an orchestral, or not necessarily a choral work, what drew you to choir? Is it your, your kind of love of languages, or what else well, drew you to choir? Yeah, I mean, the languages tie into vocal music for sure, because, yeah. you know, we got words, right? Yeah, it's and so I cool. Words. So I was always into literature and poetry and, and you know, poetry in lots of different languages. So that's a natural fit with vocal music. And then as far as choral music goes, I just, you know, I sang in choirs. Um, I never had the, I, I got to be serious about singing, but I never got, I never was in a place where I had a, a career in mind doing that. I didn't have the inclination or the talent to do that. Right. But I had the skills to sing in really good choirs, and so I got involved in you know some pro choir singing and that that kind of thing, and I really loved it. Yeah. Um, but I would say back then it was really, uh, I'm a team guy. I mm. like team sports. I like team everything. Yeah. Um, and so for me, sort of, well, vocal music in groups with cool languages that sounds like choral music. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> Pretty obvious. So. That's where I ended up. That's really cool. So then, just just because I, I haven't read your bio in, in a while, but how so how long have you been with Santa Fe? Um, 13 years with the Desert Crown now. 13 years, wow. And you're also the conductor of the Dallas Symphony Orchestra, symphony or Chorus. Symphony Chorus, right? Mm -hmm. Awesome. How long have you been with them? Uh, that has been since 2011, so 10 years. Wow. Yeah, and I am transitioning out of that position next year, so I'm oh wow, here with that, but um, it's been great. I've loved it. That's cool. Mm -hmm. And uh, you're also the artistic director of another group as well, right? I can't. Yeah, remember the Wahoo Choral Society that I'm just starting with, which is a small community chorus based in Honolulu. Wow! So you're going to be traveling all over the place, and that's that sounds amazing. So, yeah. well, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, that's it, essentially. So we live in Honolulu and um, mm. and moved here for a variety of reasons, um, one of which was uh, to get to work with this group, but also because my wife is from here. Oh, that's and awesome. she got a job offer, so we are back where she's from, and that's why I'm finishing out in Dallas for the next year, mm. um, and then we'll be here full-time, which is great. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. So cool. Um my question about that is what are some things because it's obviously incredibly different you know i feel like most conductors well like maybe not most maybe that's not fair to say but you know you kind of think of as a conductor of like oh they have a chamber choir or oh they're kind of a, a large work person but to have kind of a, a a specialty almost in both of those camps of chamber choir and large works what are some of your some things that you've like really loved about both of those experiences that you can't get in the other one yeah well they complement each other super well right yeah because there's all kinds of pieces that you can't do with the chamber choir and i i grew up in the san francisco symphony chorus oh I wow when i was 21 for a lot of years and it was awesome and yeah. we had it was a really busy chorus. We had maybe seven, eight, nine, sometimes even ten different projects every single year. Whoa. Each one we did several different times. So, you know, we were down there a hundred nights a year sometimes. That's crazy. 
so I really grew up in that and um, and it was amazing because they had all these guest conductors come through and I didn't know you know what I was learning but I was learning a lot right and I grew up on those major works so I really love them and I yeah. love the monumentality of them and the experience of performing with orchestras and all that kind of stuff and and just the most ennobling music that we have. You know, if you think about right. just you know the St. Matthew Passion or yeah, you know some of our great works, they just think, wow, this is. Did you get to do this and you get to bring these into the world? So, I absolutely love that experience. I also love the the at least partly amateur nature of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. In in San Francisco, we had a core of Agma pro singers and then volunteers. And I served in both of those, so I started as a volunteer and then I got into the other one, but I always had my heart kind of in that volunteer experience because that's what I started. Yeah. And I love that. And I love the spirit that that brings and I love the just people who are so dedicated and joyful and 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 give of themselves so freely and yeah. so passionately to do this thing. In Dallas, the group is 100% volunteer. Oh, wow. Wonderful. And there's over 200 of them, so it's like you know, an amazing sound. They do a really good job. And, um, and it's just joyful to do those works. So that's that side. And then of course, the chamber choir side, you know, well, from your own work, it's just flexible. It's it can be very creative, you can do a lot of non traditional things. You're not uh, wedded to an orchestra. So there's a million reasons why that is also appealing. In the case of the Desert Corral, they're all pros, which means they just bring an extraordinary skill level which right. is wonderful, which means you can basically program anything. I should say anything that you can sell, you can program. Mm. You know, we do depend on selling tickets to survive, so I can't just do anything and expect <laughs> to be okay. Right, right. But from a musical standpoint, you can really do anything. Yeah. And that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, so obviously those two experiences really um, complement each other in a beautiful way, and you get from one what you can't get from the other and vice versa. Yeah, I've, I've had that same experience. I conduct a similar uh, volunteer, the Nebo Holiday Chorus and Orchestra, which only started a couple years ago. I was the co-founder of it with this lady who I go to church with, and she was just like, no one, we have so many talented musicians down here south of Provo, but they all go up north to perform. What are we doing? Let's start our own thing. And so it, you know, about a hundred singers and about 30 orchestra people who are all volunteers and do Messiah each year. And we're starting to do a, a like a Memorial day, uh, kind of like a conglomerate type piecing together of large works starting next year. And it's, yeah, I'm the same way. I like, love that. It's so fun. And they, they're just all here for it. They're all then they'll give it their all, and it's really fun. So I actually really resonate with that a lot. That's cool. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so another reason why you're kind of a legend is because of this document. I don't know. I'm sure you're aware of it, but this document of your quotes from your choral lit class was leaked by a student and found okay. its way to found its way to my choral lit class with Andy Crane and Rosalind Hall. <laughs> yeah, I, the internet's crazy. I just read it. I just read it sometimes when I just need a, a good solid laugh because these quotes are absolutely genius. And there's just so much and I I I find I found that I didn't even know you yet, but I in reading some of those quotes it's like there's I haven't met a single person who's been able to find ways to make historical composers relevant in like such a concise way. 
And so what, what do you think it is about maybe the way you approach music history or historical context that make, that kind of allows you to do that where like no one else really can, you know? Uh, well, I wouldn't, I don't know that no one else can. I'm sure lots of people can, you know, I've True. had great teachers, um, you know, who have been really impactful in my life and, you know, teaching music history and that kind of thing. So, um, I don't think it's unique. I think that it's quite, the, the student that you're talking about is Justin Binnick. He was, a, he was at North Texas where I was teaching Coral Lit and he was in those classes. And then he, he later, after he had done it, told me that he had collected all these notes <laughs> and put them on the internet. So... <laughs> He might, to be fair to him, he may have asked me if it was okay. I think that he did because he was a very thoughtful guy. You know, right, right. Like, yeah, do whatever you want. <laughs> um, but I hadn't read them, so <laughs> I guess I did say all those things. I, I think there's a chance that Justin made me sound better than I actually was <laughs> um, in his note taking. I, I honestly don't know, but I would say um, I would say this that I think it's my job as an educator and you know educator means you could be teaching a school or you could be teaching a symphony course or you should be working with a volunteer choir or whatever you're educating in the sense that you're leading a group you're trying to bring people to a common purpose and you know teach them yeah. stuff. um so in that role my job is to make people love choral music as much as i do nice that's my job you yeah. know or more so i try and you know bring that you know, choral lit stuff, which frankly, you know, it could be really dull. Right. You know, like, you know, here's a list of composers, here's a list of pieces you should know, go listen to them. And it's kind of, all right, we can do that. But wouldn't it be more fun if it was entertaining and if we could laugh about it and if we could make, you know, funny little quips or whatever? Um, you know, I'm a little scared to ever look at that document again because <laughs> I feel like some of it might be wrong or out of date or inappropriate or I don't know what. <laughs> yeah, it just when you're in the moment and it's just it's just coming to your head, you make connections. Who knows what's going to come out sometimes? Yeah, who knows if it's, you know, I would never like put it out there as like this is my manifesto or anything. <laughs> but I'm glad that it has been useful to people. I'm glad that those core lit classes have been useful. Um, I love teaching them and I've actually continued doing that online now, which has been really oh, fun. Oh, awesome been able to pick up some a little bit more online lecturing starting this fall um, with a couple schools which is great because um, it's something that I can do from where I am here and also te keep my hand in teaching which I really enjoy yeah and I think that you know the interesting thing about that being able to just kind of <clears throat> th there's a certain relatability that almost well so to back up five steps I get my brain starts going so fast but it's really cool because I've wanted to have you on for a long time because that's like sound of ages our number one goal is to bring early music out of the museum it's like our our why statement and I've felt for a long time that particularly maybe not and I, and I agree that it's maybe not as unique as my initial statement made it sound in terms of like making it relatable but with early music, when you do like pre-Mozart stuff, typically the the stereotype is that it's it's like a it's like museum art, and you have to have the most up-to-date, perfect, historically informed performance because the academy will will be listening for it, and and it's this sacred cow, and and so I was really intimidated by early music for a really long time, and so. It, 
without even realizing it, some of those quotes that you're reading about Bach, you know, my, one of my favorite quotes you said is, is uh, the only one I can really remember off the top of my head because I also love Poulenc. Because you're like, Poulenc is in a cafe. That's where you picture him. In a, in a cafe drinking coffee. Or is not like Bach. Bach's in a graveyard. <laughs> it's like, you know, and so it's just like, whoa, this is like funny in real life. And, and it instantly kind of one step at a time took that down out of the museum a little bit. And so what are some other things that you find that you do, whether it be you know, with Santa Fe or with the classes you teach or any of your other ensembles to kind of break down those, those kind of sacred cow barriers to, to music that may have seemed less than accessible before. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you for bringing that up. Cause Holy cow, like imagine you yourself were put off or intimidated by early music and you're like, you know, you're the target audience, right? You run an early music group now. <laughs> So think about what it's like for regular people. Right. right. Oh, yeah. And how many barriers we put up. And I think that it is human nature. You know, in some sense, you just have to understand how we are as humans where, okay, we did things a certain way. And then there was sort of a quote unquote revolution, if you will, mm. you know, historically informed performance. And people got really fired up about it. And that was good. Like that yeah. was a good thing, you know, people learned a lot and they learned, you know, new ways of reinterpreting the music and discovering original intent and all that kind of stuff. And like most revolutions, it calcified over time mm. into a rigid set of rules and fanatics who defined it. And then they were putting up barriers um, that said, you know, I can and you can't unless only X is acceptable. And there's a certain point where you realize this is not serving the greater goal. Because remember, the greater goal is to make people love choral music as much as you do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Right. That's not converting anybody to the fold. That's just putting up in and out groups. It's creating clubs that certain people can be in. I call them the early music police. I, I say <laughs> it, with, you know, I say it with sort of a dose of hatred and, and love at the same time, because if right. not for some of those folks, we wouldn't know all the stuff that we know. Yeah. I mean, God bless them. Like, that's cool. <laughs> that's great. But this other thing that is an either intended or I'd like to think unintended byproduct is this kind of like academic rigidity and certainty about one's own position, which I think even in outside of music is a curse in our current society that prevents right. us from speaking to people who don't agree with us. It, it's just our human nature to do that. And so if we don't like that, we say, okay, well, what is it then? What can we do with early music or with any music to make people care about it? And I think it's to make it relevant to their lives as much as we can through storytelling. Yeah. You know, primarily because I think that's how humans relate to things. Yeah. There are there are ways in which people will relate to things in a purely musical way where they won't understand the story or the words but they hear the sound and it's just appealing. And I think that that's great. But I will bet you that the most of those people who are inclined in that way they were coming to your concert anyway. Right. You know, they were coming yeah. because they're into the sound. They're like they're the they're the ones who are they're there. Yeah. And then there's the segment of the population is never going to come and that's cool cuz core music isn't for everybody. I don't like I don't know olives i just don't like olives no judgment amen but like olives, disgusting. Not gonna eat them. right <laughs> yeah so you know there's always going to be those people you don't need to chase those people because they're not going to like it so who are you chasing if you're trying to mm. get more people you're chasing the marginal people 
the people yeah. who are, I call them choir curious, you know, people who are like, ah, oh, yeah, I kind of like, I don't know, could that be for me? And I think you get those people through stories. You're not going to get them through, um, you know, you're not going to get them through the fact that you have discovered, you know, the world's most exact replica of a 1743 <laughs> oboe d'amore, which was built. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that people are doing that. I have no disrespect to those people. God bless them. That's awesome. Right. But I'm more interested in things that are more applicable to more people. Yeah. And so if that comes through storytelling and I, I tell a story of why you should care about Josquin's Ave Maria, right? Yeah. Not because it's beautiful, which it is, not because it's the world's greatest, you know, uh, example of perfect four point counterpoint and canon, all this kind of stuff, which it is, but more because Josquin changed one word in it and he put a memento me at the end. And isn't that so beautiful that it was a personal statement? And mm. at that moment, all the polyphony stops and all you hear is the words clearly for the first time in the whole piece. And isn't that stunning? And I think more people will say, oh, that's interesting to me. Yeah. You know, or I could relate to that. Or I've said a prayer before. Or I've hoped for something. Right, right. And this guy from 600 years ago who spoke a language I don't speak, who comes from a faith that may not be mine, but he did the same thing. I feel like that's the work that we ought to be doing to make not just early music, but any music interesting to people and relatable and, and to make it more popular because we know why it's beautiful. Right. We want, right. To, make, we want to let more people know about it. Yeah. I think that's amazing. And I, you know, as I was listening, I, it, my background is also kind of, kind of in composition and, and I, I did a lot of, um, composer society stuff at BYU-Idaho, and I did lots of composition and counterpoint classes at BYU during my master's, and I remember I have so many discussions. When we were talking about music history and we were talking about writing our own stuff of this kind of, this almost like fight between, you know, are, are you writing this for, for people to love or are you writing this to express your art? And you're, you know, are you trying to say something? And so it's really interesting to hear the way you speak is totally and and I am I am 100% in the same boat of like I also think that th this music changed my life in, in no hyperbolic sense it did and it can deepen your like life experience if you will like like if you get it, if you, and I'll let me, let me help share it with you. And so that kind of populist mentality of like, we want to get as many people here as possible, I think is something that I really resonate with. And, and is something that, cause I also, I think that the, the art for art's sake and who cares who listens and the, not that they're in the same club, but then also the early music police, so to speak, are also like, we couldn't really do our part without them doing their part almost in in a way and so i think it's cool that teamsmanship mentality that you expressed kind of comes through in what those things that you were saying is that yeah that's all that's all part of the ecosystem right yeah so, it's all working together in these different little parts that kind of build this whole thing that make it work together so yeah and i would say that different groups have different missions too 100% so, there's groups, you know, where the mission is social inclusion. There's groups where the mission is musical excellence. There's groups where the mission is 
you know, historical performance, whatever it is. And there's, of course, the truth is that everyone has usually all of those in different amounts, right? Yeah, true. Priorities. And that's good. That's good in the choral ecosystem to have groups where you say, look, you you want to sing in a group that is specifically about this one thing or does this one thing. Well, we have that for you. And mm. here's something else. If you're a person who's drawn to just like, I just want to sing just Motets and nothing else. Right. All I want to do is Gregorian chant. Good news, bro. Like we have that. <laughs> that exists. Yeah. That is available to you. And it's good that it's available to you. And if you're a, you know, for example, with Desert Corral, artistically, I'm working really hard to please the artists. Yeah. I really am. Like, those are the people that I want to please the most. Not that I don't care about the audience. I do. But the artists are the ones who are the most discerning. Mm, right? Yeah. Because they know the art better than anybody else, including many of them better than me. So, for me, I have to serve them. And that means being really particular musically and saying, no, this is the level. It has to be super high. We're not going to, quote unquote, dumb it down in any way. Like, we're going to do this because we can yeah. Whereas with a community chorus, I might take it a different approach and say, yeah. what are the values here? Why are mm. we? Is it a group that focuses exclusively on excellence? Okay, great. Then we're going to do that. Is it something else? Is it social aspects? Is it involving as many people as possible? Is it being representative of the community that we live in? There's so many different reasons to do it. So I think even one conductor, one leader can lead in different ways as is appropriate to the group that they're in front of. Yeah. And, and, oh man. And I, t that's so fascinating because I actually tell that without realizing it, I think even a lot of public school teachers do the same thing. And so I, I talk to my high school students all the time when we go and observe like festival or something, you, you know, they get into this like high school, like, oh, well, we know everything. And uh, they were just so and I was like, wait a second, wait a second. There is none of that. There, you don't have any idea who their seniors were that are gone now, what that culture was like, then what this culture is like. And you have no idea what the conductor's priorities are. You know what mine are? And they're like, yeah, and they list them off. And I'm like, yeah, so we're going to kill it in those things. Guess what we're not that great at? All the things that they just did really well because that's where their focus and their mission is. And so I think that when you find that, then the community can kind of, latch the more you have then the more the community can appreciate the art as a whole even more yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of doors into it rather than just the one door where you got to walk through and you know it's yeah uh, i just feel like you get in where you fit in and everyone's going to approach it in a different way yeah so so to kind of shift gears a little bit off of the the topic of the groups themselves and kind of in a, in a way of maybe not connecting group to group, but connecting now to back then, what what roles do you see early music playing in today's choral world? In, in the music itself and in kind of the larger scope of of the, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? The industry, I guess, so to speak. Sure. Well, I mean... I teach choral lit a lot, so the first thing I have to say is that early music, if we're talking like before 1750-ish, yeah, it's the majority of the music that we have. Hmm. You know, if you think about it just in terms of volume of choral music, most of it comes from that era. It's like an iceberg. 
where the part that we know, like the 35 motets that we know and the 70 masses and the whatever that are kind of popular, it's the part that's sticking out of the water. But 95% of that is down below and it's all the stuff that we don't know or scholars know, but regular people don't. And by regular people, like I include me and you, we're like, right, you know, yeah. we, don't, <laughs> we don't know the majority of it. So I would say, first of all, it's just this kind of unbelievably deep, inexhaustible resource of beautiful art. Mm. Right. That's what, you know, that early music is in a way that it isn't for orchestral music, instrumental music of different kinds, chamber music. It doesn't go back that far. Right. right. We had instrumental ensembles and all that. But it, it was choral music and vocal music that goes all the way back. So I would say for that reason, it's just this resource that, in my view, is, you know, not done enough um, relative to its importance, historically mm. speaking, in the development of the art form. Yeah, wow. I hadn't even thought of it that way. Like I'm here, this kind of old music advocate, and I didn't even think about it that way. That's so fascinating and and makes so much sense as to why, you know, but it, it's really interesting then that, that so little of it is known. I, I mean, finding records is, is harder the further you go back, so that makes sense. But in terms of like what gets performed the most is kind of not, it is just this small little sliver right of just yeah and it's an opportunity for people you know like you i i wouldn't put myself in that camp of like you know early music specialists and like like no absolutely not we're desert Crowl is an extremely varied group so we do everything right. we sing everything so we're definitely not an early music group per se but you know we perform early music and we use historical you know instruments and that sort of thing from time to time and even then i just you know i get into a project and i start digging around and like there's 300 <laughs> things that I could look into. In yeah. I don't have the time or the capacity to do it. So I'm going to pick these three angles and see what I can learn and find out and create this program. And that's pretty cool. But I'll say that there's so much that I don't know. And there's so much that most people don't know. Yeah. I know nothing. Like, inexhaustible. Yeah. <laughs> I've been doing these podcasts. I'm like, oh my gosh, what did I, why am I doing this? I am not an expert to be doing a podcast called early music Monday. I know basically nothing, but <laughs> you know, but so, but cause that you're right. There's so much. Yeah. And nobody knows everything. And that's, and that's the antidote to the rigid, um, you know, policing mentality is to just acknowledge our insufficiency and say, yeah, like, <laughs> I definitely don't know everything. I know a little bit about this. I'm happy to share what I know. I'm not going to put myself out as some fancy expert or whatever. Right. But, you know, we did these concerts. They sounded pretty good. You know, maybe in 50 years, somebody will come along and say, well, that was crap. Because <laughs> we've since discovered right, right. X, Y, and Z. And I just yeah. make room for that possibility. Like, yeah, that's totally possible. Which is mm -hmm. why, you know, I try not to speak with a great deal of certainty about anything. Yeah. As it relates to this stuff, because, you know, if we were sitting there in 1963 recording St. Matthew Passion, we were doing it in the way that everyone thought it should be done. And it wasn't going to be 15 years before everyone decided that was crap, right? You're right. So, you know, times change, people change. Um, it's normal. And, and that's why I, you know, I often, I think about this even in terms of social movements now, where people, including people that I love and respect and care about, are really um, committed to the idea of um, putting others in boxes and shaming them. And 
And I always think to myself, like, you know, you may be right and you may be wrong, but we won't really know for a while. Yeah. And so for your, for this kind of certainty, uh, I think that it's tricky, mm. um, to, to speak from that position of presumed authority about. Yeah. Individual. Yeah. And I, oh man, that's, and I think that, you know, in, in, in past episodes, I try to, I try to take like a early composer or a, some kind of aspect of their life and relate it to, to now and and for for kind of the general audience too where it's like hey a coral lit student could learn something and my dad who always just says can't you just sing in english what is this and listens to country music his whole life like that's th those are the things that i have in my head you know when i'm and and there's a really great book i'm not sure if you've heard of it by an amazing lady named liz wiseman called uh rookie smarts and uh, she's a CEO leadership person. And the rookie smarts principle is she's talk about how a lot of n times when you're new, you don't realize what questions you quote unquote shouldn't ask. And so then you ask those questions and you find new territories and you expand your influence. And so then how do you keep yourself having rookie smarts like consistently so you don't get caught in the I'm an expert now mentality and it, it's amazing i haven't even read the whole thing yet but just brilliant stuff about try, trying to what you said of keep yourself out of that presumed authority putting people in these containers of okay well you are this and you are this and i'm the presumed authority here i think opens the door for all kinds of possibilities for bringing the choral art we're like on this verge of this choral renaissance right now and it could just I think it could even more just bust the doors wide open to the general public even more so, you know. And we're winning that battle for the record. Uh, 50 million Americans, 50 plus million, according to Chorus America, participating in choral music. Whoa, so, that's a lot. It's a lot. It is a lot. And, you know, of course, that includes school choirs, community of faith, uh, all that stuff. But still, and you consider we're a nation of 350 million, approximately, something like that. Yeah. So they're saying over one in seven. Think about that. Are there one in seven people, you know, participating in painting or in modern dance or in, mm. you know, orchestral playing? And I don't know the numbers on all those things, but I presume sure. that they're lower. Yeah. Right? Because choral music is accessible to a huge majority of people because it involves your voice, which is a built-in instrument. You don't got to pay for it. it just yeah comes with the territory yeah so it's pretty you know we have an opportunity whether it's with early music or not to yeah. reach a lot of people and that's cool because you and i both know what this experience can be and can mean in terms of transform transformational yeah you know, to live and so i think the more people who can experience that the better yeah i totally agree and when i, I say that a lot because i i just the things you're saying resonate with really profoundly. And I, so that leads me to a kind of another question, a segue into another point of, you know, I can also tell from, from the way you talk about it that, you know, you can only, you can only program what you can sell. And so I, I'm really curious to hear, I loved the, I mean, I, I loved all three programs uh, from the the Santa Fe Summer Festival, and I loved the 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 un. I, I don't think it's a 
timely coincidence that it's kind of like this unlikely partners thing or unlikely pairs and the east versus west thing is super cool and and then obviously i love the the jew and the gentile um and and then the the roaring 20s what so when you're putting those programs together what without maybe giving away your secrets uh, or whatever but what is what is kind of the pro like where do you even start when it's when you have let's say you've you've scheduled all of your group's performances and all the programs and it's like okay now the season's happening when you go back to the drawing board for next season what do you even do um so i the the process that i follow may make sense to you know just for me or may make sense for other people i have no idea yeah, sure. But I've come over the years to a process that seems to work for me, which is that I just keep a notebook about theme ideas. Hmm. We, in talking now about Desert Corral, so setting Symphony Chorus aside, because Symphony Chorus doesn't need really a theme idea. Hmm. You're just going to do, you're going to do the Brahms Requiem. The Brahms Requiem doesn't require a subtitle or a title <laughs> of any kind. If the Brahms Requiem show up, it's awesome. Yeah, right? exactly. So it markets itself, you're good. Um, but now I'm talking about what the corral in Santa Fe would typically do, which is, you know, different from that. Right. And basically we need to wrap a marketing concept around the music in order to get people to come and hear it because yeah. nobody's going to buy a ticket. It's called spring concert. Right. 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 Nobody wants that. But in a school environment, spring concert works super well because we have a spring concert over here. It's called the spring concert. You'll love it. Come. Yeah. So it totally depends on the scenario that you're in. But uh, talking now about Desert Corral, um, theme ideas. Very often they'll start with pieces that I really would like to do, mm. you know, because the music itself is more interesting than the theme most of the time, right? So you say, I love this Poulenc whatever, Swardinesh. This is an awesome set of Poulenc. It's totally appropriate for chamber choir. Um, I want to do a program or that could include it. What else am I interested in? What do I have to say? Hmm. Yeah. You know, what what can I add to a musical conversation? Well, I'm really interested in Nordic music too, and oh, there's this interfaith thing that I'm interested I'm just interested in interfaith thing, like programming in general as a way to express, you know, different choral traditions. And then I end up with, well, okay, cool. So Swardinej was written during World War Two, um, in the darkest days of World War Two, where yeah. it was Christmas and the Nazi and were in control in France and the resistance was not looking good and and these poems are really dark and it's quite serious music and so what if it was music about resistance hmm. what if it was music and then I went from there to music of revolution and then I thought well World War II and resistance what about the music in the camps the Jewish um, music hmm. that was sung in the in the concentration camps and how that was an expression of resistance in some form and and then I got, I'm interested in Scandinavian and Baltic music. So then I was like, but what about the singing revolution, 1990? That was super cool. And Estonia like freed itself and nobody <laughs> fired a shot because singing. And <laughs> yeah, so a lot of it for me, and then that's how you end up with the program that we called Liberté. Yeah. Freedom in 2017. Um, that was Poulenc and Jewish music and, and um, yeah. And uh and Estonian music and some really cool things. Oh, and African-American spirituals because music of resistance. Right, exactly. Right? There's so much that's there. 
So how did that happen? It started because I thought like Swardinesh is awesome, which is right. incontrovertible. Like that's true. <laughs> yeah. So I want to do that. Now, how are we going to make a marketing theme and make it work so that it's coherent? And what story are we telling? Mm, yeah. Because I think it comes back to storytelling and narratives. Because again, that's what most people are going to grab onto. They're not going to hear an Estonian piece and be like, I'm feeling the singing revolution 1990. No, they're not. They don't even know what that is or that it happened. (laughs) Right. Right. So why do I care about this? Well, you care about it because this is a longing for freedom. And this thing happened in which X, Y, and Z. And that's relatable to you because you know what? In your own life, X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And you try and introduce that and do that maybe by speaking at the concert in a very concise way, very concise way, never lecturing. Right trying to draw those parallels for people and to say like, here's why essentially here's why you should care about this. Yeah. Here's the story that we're telling in music. Now, listen, isn't the music beautiful? Yes, it is. But more than that, it has something to do with you. Yeah. Mr. So-and-so who just walked into a cathedral, Mrs. Whoever who liked choir when she was eight, but has never been back. Yeah. Right. So anyway, I think about programming that way Hmm. and then it takes a long time. So for me, like, First of all, we have to work for Desert Crawl way in advance. Um, yeah, because, I'm sure. Because of the granting deadlines. So the earliest grants are usually to the National Endowment for the Arts, and those are usually due about 18 to 19 months before you would perform it. Yeah. So you have to have a complete program 18 to 19 months ahead of time, which means a year before that, you better be working on it. Oh, yeah. Because you got to create it. And then you have to have time to set it aside. At least this is how I work. I can't do last minute. Like we all know what those papers look like when we stayed up all night. <laughs> we had them in the next morning. They were not good. Right, right. We didn't revise it. So I try and create room for revising, which means I create the program. I put it aside for a month or so. Mm. Yeah. I don't think about it. I don't look at it. I come back a month later and I look at it again. And then I see it with new eyes and I see this is really compelling. This part is not. Yeah, it doesn't work. I'm going to throw that out and I'm going to rework it. And then I do that again. And maybe I'll do it again. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Until such time as I feel like either I'm out of time, (laughs) which sometimes (laughs) happens. Right. Or and or I feel really good about this. This is saying something that I believe in. The music is all excellent, high quality. That's worthy of being performed by the world's greatest chamber choir. One of the country's really great chamber choir. Right. And worth people hearing. And then we're there. But the whole thing takes three years. Yeah. And in the meantime, you have the next year that you're working on too. Because it's a multi-year process. So, you know, while you're learning the music that you programmed for this year, you're programming the last stages of the following year and you're ideating, you're dreaming up the ones that are three years from now. Yeah, wow. And so there's a cycle. And once you get on the cycle, it's actually pretty cool because you get to do different things at different times. Yeah. So sometimes I'm just like, all I got to do is dream and not worry about any details and just throw (laughs) ideas out when I wake up in the morning and then I've done my work for the day on that. Right. I have other work where it's like, I got to learn how this phrase goes. Yeah. Right. In this, because we're performing this in six weeks. Yeah. So it's a, it's a mix. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. And I think you're, man, something that's really profound is the storytelling. Another a conductor at BYU-Idaho, Randall Kempton. He was my mentor during my undergrad. And his programs were so compelling 
because of that reason. And and I mean, we were a religious school, so it was always clearly religious. But but even then, there's always something that was very non-traditional and like human about every story. To where it's like I, it doesn't matter if you have no religious beliefs. This this is like a human story, and he he was a pro at that too. And I think you're right because we the whole community. I mean, we had sellout crowds every time there on campus because his programming was so good. And I think that school choir conductors can kind of, again, even in a public school setting, you can almost, if you think of it like a business, you can, you can kind of create the same thing. Even if it's like a showcase with each of your different groups, you can, if you think about it, well, you can really do the same thing and, and make it, you help the kid, the students see, the larger picture and their pic- and their pieces and and I think so I think that there's all kinds of possibilities to apply that. Yeah, it seems to me that you're talking about the you're talking about the basic human need, which is that we long to belong to something bigger than ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, I believe that that's coded into each one of us. Now it expresses itself in different ways and can be understood in different ways. So it could be through a religious community, it could be through a family unit, it could be through a sports team allegiance, it could be through my neighborhood, my right. buddies, uh, you know, people across the world. There's a million ways that that can express itself, but I believe that it is a basic human need, which is we long to belong to something bigger than ourselves. Mm. And that's what I felt that day, you know, sitting in the hallway outside my class listening to my Walkman, I felt a part of something that was old, that had nothing to do with me, nothing obvious to do with me, and yet very clearly everything to do with me because suddenly I felt like it was speaking to me in a very direct way. And I think that people long for that. And I believe that in a, even in a school community, you know, even if you were to say, well, I'm just, it's just parents who are showing up to hear their kids sing. Well, I'm sure that's true. But they're <laughs> also longing, they have that same need. Yeah. And they want to be a part of the school community. They want to be a part of what their kids are involved in. They want to understand what it is. And so you have an opportunity there, even with quote-unquote non-music people. Right. To tell a really great story of why you should care about this and why your kid's experience is meaningful. Yeah. Yeah, wow. And, um, and I think that therein lies the kind of we, our conversation came really perfectly into a form of a full circle. Um, and, and I think that that's, that's something that, you know, we can all strive more for. Cause I think, you know, just like you said, with society being it as it is, there's, there's a great potential we have to really, you know, do our part to, to help people feel something. Hey, you know what? You may not feel like you belong anywhere else. You can, you can be a part of this somehow. And we can kind of really bring the, the goodness in our, you know, respective spheres, I think. So that's really cool. Yeah, and choral music, in my experience, is one of the few places left where we are not sorting ourselves quite as much. Right. You know, whether it's religiously or politically, uh, socioeconomically, to some extent, maybe a little less. Sure. Um, but, But it's still a space where people from different backgrounds can come together to a common purpose without a requirement of convincing the other yeah <laughs> the other values right <laughs> right so, you know i've met people through choral music that i never would have been friends with 
right? Because we come from completely different places and different belief systems. But we had this connection through choral music that established a rapport and established a mutual respect and a kindness and a love. And then the other stuff, you're like, you know what, that doesn't seem so important. Like, it's important to me in my life, and I, I have my own convictions, which I, you know, hold to pretty strongly. But they're not prerequisites for, for you know, doing this other thing. They're just not, in my yeah. view. So, yeah. um, you know, choral music can be inclusive, can reach across boundaries that we're all experiencing now. And I think that that's one of its great strengths. Yeah, me too. Well, I really appreciate your time. I, I could We could talk about this stuff for hours and I would be so thrilled. And we didn't even get to specifics about Monteverdi and Rossi and that's okay. And <laughs> I'll, I'd love to have you on again sometime in the future and, and we can talk about upcoming programs that you're excited about or, or whatever and get into some specifics if you'd like and, and and whatever it's been a real pleasure so yeah i'd be happy to do that All right, everyone, thank you for tuning in to the show today. It was a really great pleasure to, to sit down with Josh Haberman, and I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. And please check out Santa Fe Desert Chorale, particularly the Gentile and the Jew that from their concert series Summer 2021 Festival, uh, where they team up you know, the music of Rossi and Monteverdi. If you like the show... Please give us a five-star rating, write us a nice review, like, share, subscribe, and check out our website, soundofageschoir.com slash podcast for any updates. And we'll catch you next time on Early Music Monday.